Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Death Insured, The Pam Hupp Story. As the ad goes, you're in good hands with Allstate. But not if you are Betsy Faria. The brutal murder of Betsy Faria on December 27, 2011, set off a maelstrom of events that resulted in an innocent man's imprisonment and another man's death. It would take a decade to unravel all the misdirection in the Faria murder case, the misconduct of the prosecution team, and the insidious mind of a murderer that St. Charles County Prosecutor Tim Lamar called the worst of the worst. Betsy Faria was stabbed over 55 times. The murder scene was staged in an effort to frame the victim's husband, Russell Faria. Through an investigative trial filled with perjury, tainted evidence, and misdirection, Russell was found guilty and spent three and a half years in prison before his tenacious lawyer won him a second chance. It was during that second trial that the shadows fell away and the real murderer, Pam Hupp, was revealed. But before they could bring her to justice, several people would be stalked as potential victims and one man would eventually lose his life in her effort to deflect suspicion from herself. Along the way, her mother mysteriously plunged from her third-floor balcony and died. And the bottom of it all? Pure greed. Rebecca Pittman has written a book more comprehensive and riveting than any documentary or made-for-TV movie. And she joins me now on Murder Most Foul. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. Now, your book titled Countdown to Murder, Pam Hupp, Death Insured, is indeed a page turner. And I do always encourage my listeners to get the book because no matter how in-depth we go, uh, we can't touch the surface of a well-written book, which this is. Um, it has details. It has pictures. Uh, and uh, anything you want to know about this case, it is a riveting case, I think, from many standpoints. Um, and the, it's had some coverage recently. And you got a shout out on the Today program, correct? I was, that was a surprise. That was very, very nice. Yeah, because, again, we'll talk about later uh, the television treatment of the case. So for those of you who are hiding under a rock um, <laughs> and don't know anything about uh, Pam Hupp. Um, I don't want to be flip, but when I read the book and then went back and, and did a little research online, whatever, the only thing I can say is she is one twisted sister. 
Uh, that's probably the kindest thing you could say about her. I think the title of your show, Murder Most Foul, that's about as close as you can come to this woman. So basically, uh, Pam and Betsy met while working at a state farm insurance company. Uh, Betsy was 10 years Pam's junior, and they worked together for a while. Betsy's super bubbly, outgoing. Uh, Pam was more of the methodical business person, actually did a very good job at her job. Uh, Betsy finally left and they kind of lost touch for a while. And then Betsy started a DJ business on the side and ended up DJing Pam's daughter's wedding. They kind of came in and out of each other's life like that. Then all of a sudden, this was um, much, this was 10 years before the murder that they were working together. The murder was actually December 27th in 2011. Um, so anyway, Pam's popping in and out, but not they weren't that close. And then suddenly in 2010, Betsy is diagnosed with breast cancer. Suddenly, Pam is back in her life like a supercharger. Uh, I'll take you to chemo. Uh, let's go to on walks together. And suddenly, Pam's everywhere. Uh, they, but then uh, later on, it came back that they looked like she'd beat the breast cancer. So they planned a celebration of life cruise. And sadly, right before it, a month before the cruise uh, in um, October of 2011, uh, they found out the cancer was back and had spread to her liver and it was now terminal. Um, so take us through the um, uh, date, um, the, the date of the murder. Um, of, of Betsy Faria. I'd like to preface that by saying the reason I have so much of this inside information was the cooperation of all the people I interviewed for the book. Uh, literally, the prosecuting attorneys sent me the crime scene photos, gave me in-depth interviews, and I owe all of this to them. Um, without the interviews, this book would not be what it is, and I appreciate everything they did for me. So I do believe that when I tell you the story, it's coming from the facts uh, because I got to speak with the detectives and the prosecuting attorneys and police chiefs and so far. So because I don't want to get it wrong. Uh, well, we also want to cover. We also want to mention. I don't know if you would call him partner in crime, but Chris Hayes. Chris was very generous. He was very, very generous, and he's been on this case since the beginning with Fox 2 News. Um, yeah, he, he gave me quite a lot of inside things as well, which I thought was really nice. So anyway, okay, so basically, here's what's going on. Um, the, the cancer is back. They go ahead and do the Celebration of Life cruise. This is now one month before Betsy's death. And Betsy has got a chemo appointment. She has them every Tuesday, basically almost every Tuesday. So Pam usually took her. But according to Betsy's best friend, Rita Wolf, who I interviewed for the book, Rita said Betsy had told her she was getting kind of tired of Pam. Pam was like saran wrap. She was constantly there, cloying, you know, just, and she was kind of backing away from her. So on the, the, more, the day of the murder, Betsy had a chemo appointment and Pam texted her, I'm coming to get you. And Betsy said, don't come. Uh, my mom's friend, my friend is here from out of state. 
I we want a little one-on-one -on -one time, private time. Bobby's going to take me. And Bobby is a, an older woman that used to babysit Betsy. Pam later claimed she never saw that text, but when they did the cell phone data, she not only saw it, she replied, bummer. She goes ahead and shows up at Betsy's mother's home because Betsy had spent the night there to be closer to her chemo appointment. And Janet Meyer, Betsy's mom, and she shows up to take her and Janet said, they've already gone. And Pam didn't realize the appointment had been moved up 30 minutes. So she goes ahead and trots right on over to the chemo appointment and both Bobby and Betsy were shocked to see her walk in because they told her not to come. She sits with them through the chemo and then we don't know if they said see ya because Bobby and Betsy went ahead and went to dinner without her. Pam went home, she said, had dinner with her husband and then said, I'll take you home. Betsy was going to go back home that night, um, and Betsy said, you don't have to. Russ is picking me up. He's got game night. He's only five minutes from my mom's house. He's, he'll bring me home. No, 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 no. I'm going to take you home. Tell him he doesn't have to worry about it. So, again, it's that cloying, I'm, gonna, I'm coming whether you want me or not. She shows up at 530 at Betsy's mother's house to take Betsy home. They're playing their favorite game upwards, and they make Pam wait an hour before they leave, which I've always wondered, was she just like, because she had her agenda. She knew what was going to happen, which to me is chilling, to watch this woman playing an innocent game with her, with her mom and her friend. Her daughter, Mariah, is sick over on the couch, knowing she's going to take this woman home and kill her. I mean, I, I can't stop thinking about that part. So they finally leave at 6.30. They pull into the driveway at Betsy's house. And this is the interesting part. Here's the countdown. Well, it's before that. But as far as this segment, Pam puts Betsy on the phone. Pam calls her husband, Mark. Supposedly, I'm okay because he knows I don't like driving in the dark in Troy. I don't know my way around Troy. And, oh, Betsy, here, say hi to Mark. So now, and Betsy goes, um, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Mark. So now she's got her alibi established. Look, Betsy's alive at 7.04. Well, she's with me. She's alive. She's fine. Then they go in the house, and here's where the stories change. When the detectives interviewed Pam the next morning, first she, they said, did you go in the house? She goes, no, no, I didn't. And she said, and it was really weird because the front porch light wasn't on. It was all dark, no lights, and the door was open, you know, and Russ wasn't home. He was at game night with his buddies. Um, but in the same interview, later, within 10 minutes, and they asked her again, did you go in? You know, I did. Um, I, I, yeah, um, I went in and, and turned on a light in the living room. But right before that, she'd said Betsy went in and turned on the living room light. You don't need two people to turn on the same light. So supposedly at this point now, Betsy goes in ahead of her, puts the dog out 
the back door on a chain because Pam's afraid of the dog. The dog's kind of one of those that lunges at you. It's not mean. He's just aggressive and lunges at you. Then she said, Betsy turned on the living room light. Then she said, Betsy went out to the Nissan because she hadn't had her keys in her purse all weekend, which is not true. But anyway, she went out and got her chemo bag and brought it in. And Pam said, she also took me to the back master bedroom to show me a Christmas present that Russ got her. And she wanted me to stay and watch a movie, but it was late and I wanted to get home. I told her no. Uh, when I left, she was bundled up on the couch getting ready to watch TV. Then later during a detective's interview, months later, when they said, so when last you saw her, she was on the couch. You know what? Now it seems to me she actually walked me to the door and waved goodbye. <laughs> so her stories just kept changing. But so at this point, Pam claims she left at 727 or basically she called Betsy at 727 and said, I'm home. They later said, that's impossible. You live 30 minutes away. You couldn't have been home already. If you guys got there at 7.04, you, there's no way. Oh, well, no, what I meant was I was home free, meaning I was got to the highway where now I know where I am. So the stories just kept changing. So according to her, that's when she left. What was happening in the meantime is Leah... Uh, Betsy's daughter was needing Betsy to authorize a cell phone plan change. And Leah had called Betsy in Pam's hearing. It could have been right before they got home and said, I'm going to call you in 20 minutes. When I get to the cell phone store, you've got to authorize that I'm, I'm, you're, you're going to be, I'm putting you on my plan. Okay. Okay. So she's got, she's holding her cell phone and she's waiting for that call. Leah calls at 721, no answer. She calls at 727, no answer. 730, nothing. That's why they believe Betsy was dead by 721. She didn't answer the phone. Now, if you pull up at 704 and you add going into the house, turning on lights, putting the dog out, going out to the Nissan, getting the bag, coming back in, that murder had to have happened pretty quickly after they got into the house, even though they're now saying Pam could have made that call at 727 while still being in the house. The cell phone tower puts her within three miles of the house or possibly still there. But everything you're now saying about the timing of it makes it so clear um, uh, that it was premeditated, I mean, really premeditated, not at the moment. I really want to do this. It was, she had it, like you said, she was waiting through the game. And so she didn't have to pour her tea. She didn't have to do anything. She got her situated safely for Pam to do. And what, well, we'll talk about what we think Pam did. Let's okay. go with just the facts, ma'am. So we're not in the house now. So Pam, at whatever time, leaves and goes home. Who finds the body? Russ was at game night. It always ended at nine. Uh, he had all these witnesses. They didn't play a game that night because one of the members didn't show up. And it's a fantasy role play where everybody's got to be there. So they ended up watching two, two movies, smoked a little pot. And when Russ left at nine o'clock, he went through an Arby's at 909 and has the receipt. 
It's got the receipt showing he was there, got two cheddar melts or whatever, because pot gives you the munchies. And he went home. He got home at 9.37, walked in, set a bag of dog food down that he also has video surveillance showing he bought all, he, he's got all of this alibi video of him getting gas and everything else. So anyway, he puts the dog food down, walks into the living room, takes his jacket off and looks down and sees her laying on the floor. And now Betsy had chemo that day. She's had bad news. They've told her she's got terminal cancer, possibly three years to live. And she's tried to kill herself before. And he had to actually take a knife away from her once before. And it, he got cut in the process. So he looks down and he sees her laying with her head in a pool of blood and the knife was still stuck in her neck. Her wrists were cut really badly. The one was clear down to the bone um, through the, I mean, it was, it was bad. She had on dark clothing and that's important to remember. So his first instinct, he fell down on the floor to look at her and it was bad. Her face was bad and her tongue was protruding and everything looked to him like she was dead. And he just fell apart. And he's like almost crawling to the kitchen, calls 911, and he's in hysterics. In fact, it's a pretty long 911 call. And the um, dispatcher kept trying to calm him down because he was hyperventilating. But he says in the call, I just got home. My wife killed herself. Not that, that wording is what came back to get him. She's cold when the police arrived. Well, and the blood under her head was coagulating. It, it, I mean, it wasn't just her body temperature. The blood was setting up. But they kept, they, they just, they didn't go looking anywhere else in the beginning. No, well, because there's more. Um, and I need, and in case the listeners who have been watching the miniseries or who have read the book are going, wait a minute, it was a lot more stab wounds than that. Yes, there was. That's how many they saw. They were still counting. Later, the coroner came back and said she was stabbed 56 times. So now his words, my wife killed herself, are really coming back. How do you look at a body that's been, and some of them are in the back, and say she killed herself? She had on a dark top, dark sweatpants. He was in shock. He's got the knife and everything, and you couldn't really see those wounds, except for her arms that were exposed, her face and her neck. And that's the conclusion he jumped to, based again, she'd even left a suicide note once. Um, that was his initial reaction, but it came back to biting big time that he said that. In the meantime, the next morning when the detectives go to Pam Hupp because they asked Russ, you know, who brought her home, her friend Pam Hupp. What do you think about Pam? Pam's a nice lady. Um, so they go see Pam the next morning at 6.30. Pam has just gotten out of the shower. Her hair's still wet. But the interesting thing is, is during the interview, she said when she got home the previous night after taking um, uh, Betsy home, that was that she had taken a shower when she got home. 
She said, I got home and I watched TV with my husband, took a shower, went to bed. But now she took a shower the next morning, too. And her excuse was, um, I don't like messing around with somebody that's sweaty from all day. What well, doesn't explain why you took another shower. But anyway, so in that interview, um, she's telling them all this stuff to just seal this guy's fate. They're asking her, hey, you knew the inside story. What, what, were, what was the marriage like? Oh, he was nasty to her. He was verbally abusive. A week before she died, he went into this game of putting a pillow over her face saying, I don't know what he said. This is like, this is what it's going to feel like when you die. And they're going, was she scared? Oh, yeah, very scared. And then she said, and a week before that, Betsy and I were at a gym and she went to get Gatorade out of the gym bag, took a sip of it and went, this tastes funny. So now she's setting up, was he trying to poison her? Then she kept talking about Russ was real excited about all the insurance money he'd get from Betsy. In the meantime, the crime scene investigators are still there and they find bloody slippers in the master bedroom closet that belonged to Russ. Bloody slippers and a bloody smear on the light switch that goes into that closet in the master bedroom. And it's by then they're going, we got this guy there. We don't need to look at anybody else. And Pam is, I'll give her that. She is incredibly convincing. She puts it, she said herself, I've been in sales. I know how to read people. And she did. She could, you, you can't help but like her. And I hate to say that, but she can play the buddy buddy and be, it totally throws you. You would never suspect her. It's like, again, the, only, the time that he had to do that. And again, I know a lot of crime scenes, they go, well, maybe there isn't blood spatter. You know, you don't, if you kill someone, it's, you're not necessarily going to be covered in blood, even with 54 stab wounds. But he didn't clean up. They didn't find blood in the drains. They found nothing that would indicate that. And of course, they didn't check her house after she shot. How did we don't we don't know? I'm assuming I don't think that came out. Like was Mark her husband home when she came home? Did she have to strip somewhere, or maybe she had very little blood on her clothing and burned it or threw it out? It's a blouse. It did. My wife could lose clothing. I wouldn't. What happened to that green blouse you had? The husbands <laughs> don't do that. And but but then we have this very obvious planting of the slippers where they can be found covered and nothing else is no footprints of the slippers. Right. No, just covered on the side of them or something. And then, as you say, this big smudge on the wall, um, she probably would have been better just not doing anything, saying, OK, somehow he cleaned up. And but to, to me now, again, not to these police, but to me, this was too too obvious. Yeah, and, and that's a good point. In fact, the attorney brought up later during the trial, there were no bloody footprints. If there's blood on the slippers, there should have been footprints on the carpeting, and there's none. It looked like they had been dipped in blood. And the interesting thing about the light switch blood and the blood on the handle of the knife that was still in her neck was it looked like a weave pattern. It didn't look like fingerprints or a palm print. It had a weave texture to it, which was really odd. And you can see it. You don't even have to do a close-up. It's very obvious. So according to Pam, uh, Betsy was worried 
what was going to happen to her two daughters after she died. And they both, she and Pam had both been in life insurance. Betsy had also gone and talked to her friend, Rita. And Rita said, you don't have to do a will, you can do a trust. And then, you know, put certain times of their life. When they get married, you get this much money. If you need a car, you get. And she goes, oh, I know you could do all that. So anyway, Pam somehow, and that's still one of the mysteries of this, convinces Betsy, let's do this. You change your beneficiary, and she had three life insurance policies, but the one for $150,000, she goes, take Russ's name off, put me as the beneficiary, and I will make sure your daughters get that money as they grow up, because Russ is just going to blow it. The girls are not going to be responsible with it. They're 17 and 21. They're going to go spend it. And so... That's what happened. So Betsy and Pam are at a library. I, I mean, they're life insurance people. Why didn't they go to a state farm to have it notarized? They go to a library and walk up to this lady behind the counter and said, we need you to witness that we signed. And they, it was already signed. And normally you have to sign it in front of a notary or whatever. It was already signed. And all it said was Pam Hupp was the new beneficiary. Four days later, Betsy's dead. And then they arrested, they arrested Russ the day after the funeral. Still, Pam is just not on anybody's uh, radar at this point. No, this is a, I mean, Lincoln County is a smaller area. Troy is a rural farmland community kind of thing. It, it's very small. Uh, even Leah Askey, who was the prosecuting attorney, it was her first murder case. It was the judge's first murder case. Um, so these guys are like, we got a big one here. This is a slam dunk. We got bloody slippers. We've got this. We've got this. We've got this best friend, Pam Hupp. Poor thing. She lost her best friend. And she's filling in all the gaps of how awful this guy was, that, that he would scream at the girls, that he would scream at Betsy, that he shoved her once, that it was a vault. They separated six or seven times, which is true. Um, it was not an ideal marriage, but he'd never really physically hurt her. Uh, you know, sometimes in a fight, when you're in each other's face, you can push someone back. And that's supposedly what he did. But there wasn't any evidence of physical violence in the marriage. And so they've got this star witness that's just checking all the boxes. And they just kept having her come back and come back an interviewer to put the case. And didn't in. some of the, along the line, some of the police, confirmation bias, you use that term, yes. which is great. So they had confirmation bias. They they had their blinders on. We we have our, our perp. So now we build our case. So anyone who helps them build their case is fine. So they were actually kind of coaching Pam. Oh, yeah. What they, what they needed, what would really help. Gee, do you, I mean, they asked questions that she knew the right answer that would keep what she wanted going forward. It went beyond that. They wasn't sort of coached her. They gave her the whole scenario um, right before the, the trial. And actually he was in jail for two years. The trial wasn't until uh, November 18th of 2013. He sat in jail for two years. Um, they're having her come in and out the detectives, mainly detective McCarrick. And he said, 
that money that you got, did you put it in a trust for the girls? <laughs> Why not? I, I just had, I just haven't done that. He goes, it would be really good if you did that before the trial, because it could give the jury reasonable doubt. You know, you were the last one to see her. You came into this windfall. Any chance you've said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. I will set up the trust. She went and set up the trust, but she didn't put any money in it. And so, again, I'm, I'm putting myself in Russ's shoes. I'm sitting here going, what do I have to do? Uh, ha be having a, 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 an audience with the Pope on the other side of the world? 12 hours away to have an alibi. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it was when you look at it, well, let's shrink the timeline and all that. stuff. So, but it was so tight as far as I'm reading it. Yeah. And the detectives actually to seal the deal, uh, because that is a, that is a concern. He's got all this video evidence showing him putting gas in the car. It's time stamped two stops at convenience stores, time stamped, Four friends saying he was right here all night watching a movie with us, left at nine because they left, the other guys left at the same time. They said, but I watched his taillights go off down the road. A few minutes later, he's got an Arby's receipt. So what the detectives did was they went to the Arby's and timed it, how long it would take him to get home, which it, it was 21 minutes at least away. They sped to shorten his time. They were like riding up on the shoulders of the road to make it look like he could have done it. And even then it was problematic. And so later during the trial, we find out how they covered that little oops. But yeah, it was, it was insane. And he has uh, it, uh, the attorney Swanson, is he with the first trial? Yes, he was with the first trial. He yeah, was well, defense. Joel Schwartz was the lead attorney and Nathan Swanson was co-counsel. Got it. Got it. Uh, for, for both trials. And a woman, uh, Alex, was it? Or oh, Leah, was the Askey, prosecutor? Leah Askey was the prosecuting attorney. And she worked with the detectives that kept interviewing Pam. And it was kind of like the buddy system. And she interviewed Pam several times and they were like old pals. And all of this is being recorded in the interrogation rooms on police cameras. And you're sitting there going, I can't believe they're saying this, knowing that it's being recorded and they're looking like best buds, you know? And was she called uh, to testify in the first trial? I know she wasn't in the second. But yes, was she but they did not let Joel Schwartz, Russ's attorney, get at her. He was allowed to ask innocuous things, but the minute he started to talk about the insurance money or anything else, objection, objection, objection. No. and the judge shut him down. And he said, I have a right to do this if it can raise reasonable doubt for my client, which is true. In fact, I've, right. I've never seen anybody shut something down like that before. And he goes, all right, I want to do an offer of proof. An offer of proof is where the jury's dismissed and you can go ahead and question the witness or present new evidence to the judge and let the judge decide whether it should be allowed. It's usually a, something that's already been ruled inadmissible. They'd already told him, you can't question her about the insurance money. She's not on trial here. So he goes after her. And she's sitting there with her TENS device, which is this, she claims that she fell headfirst into a filing cabinet, 
years earlier, brain injury, spinal problems, bad leg, and this TENS device is supposed to be stimulating her spinal cord and helping her. Like she's sitting there with that, claiming disabilities, menopause. I got, I got memory issues. So she's got the whole bag of tricks going on. And he questions her about all of it. And even after he elicits from her, yeah, I got the insurance money. Why'd Betsy give it to you? She wanted me to, to have it, to look after the girls later. Okay. So the judge still said, nope, not going to let the jury hear it. And at some point, and I was surprised in the miniseries, they didn't put this in because it was so dramatic. Joel Schwartz literally goes, I don't know whether to strip naked, bang my head on the bar to get your attention. I mean, at some point he was so flustered. And so, no, the jury never got to hear any of it which would have given them reasonable doubt that there was someone else that not only benefited financially, but was the last person to see her alive and had all these conflicting stories. And backing up a little, um, Russ did agree to a lie detector test, um, kind of stumbled into it because he, he felt he, you know, wouldn't hurt because he's not guilty, didn't have an attorney. And, and, and again, like with the other, uh, stuff that the authorities were doing. This was like the Keystone cops do do a lie detector test. They could have faked the whole thing, set it up as a as a ploy, do the fake test, walk into him and say you failed, hoping he'd start crying and say you're right, right which he didn't because he's because no. he's not guilty. But they don't have to even present him because he doesn't have. An, if it was an attorney there, he'd say I need to see the test. I need to see. Uh, you well, know, the Joel Schwartz did ask for the results and that, well, the machine wasn't working. Well, we had a glitch. Well, we didn't get this either. And so there was nothing. I, I don't, I think it was in, yeah, you're right. They're legal to do a full poly, full means fake, a full polygraph test, but you have to tell the defense attorney that that is what you did. And they didn't. Do and that. they claimed they, that they it was a true test, but they just didn't have it. Well, yeah. that's and also if we can go back to it too. At the in the house, there were problems with luminol and and taking blood. The, oh, the camera didn't work. I mean, it was a little bit. Either it was Keystone cops, or they didn't want to introduce anything that mucked up their case. Oh, it was blatant. It's just it was you know, blatant. I mean, when Joel Schwartz found out because that was their big thing during the the first trial was. There was a trail of blood into the kitchen that showed a cleanup that Russ had tried to clean up the trail of blood he left into the kitchen where he made the 911 call that he'd wiped it up. And that the luminol test showed it, showed the cleanup, the wipe up. So, but then they get the crime scene detect the detects, and these are not on the payroll. They're not on the prosecution side. These are independent experts that are hired. So they're, they're totally unbiased. They stepped up and said, not only was there not a cleanup, the floor was still gritty and there were dog treats laying around on it. You can't do a cleanup and have a gritty, dirty floor. And so when Joel Schwartz asked for the photographs, they said, um, actually, those six didn't turn out. They came out black. The jury's just going to have to trust us. And that's I mean, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and then, of course, along the line, they do ask uh, Pam to take a lie detector and she gets a doctor's note. 
you don't have to go to gym today. You can't take lie detector <laughs> tests. You're excused from gym today. Yeah. Yeah. And she sent a note to him saying, just say, I can't do it. Don't need to be more detailed than that. And he did it for her. And she didn't ever take a lie detector test. And again, there is uh, quite a bit. And I want the, the readers to buy the book and read it. There's much uh, questioning back and forth of the trial listed, shown in your book. Uh, but he's convicted. He's convicted. Uh, I, just, I mean, the air went out of him. They, he, his knees went out from under him, and his attorney was holding him up pretty much. Um, so, yeah, he went off to prison, and now another countdown begins, which is really sad because Pam feels I'm home free. He's gone to prison for life plus 30 years. So she, um, she decides I'm spend that money. I'm not on the hook to give those girls anything. He killed their mom. And so a deposition now comes up. The girls decide to sue her. And now we're in civil court. It's a civil court, but before the civil court, there's a deposition right. where they were the girls' attorneys brought her in to get a feel for what she was going to say and everything. And she dances around. She's being really cute. She's almost flirting with the camera that's on her. And they said, what are your plans with the money? As of today, I don't have any plans. And it went on from there. And finally, she goes, no, Betsy, Betsy didn't say for me to give them money. Uh, she gave me the money for my discretion. And finally, she cuts to the chase and she goes, it was a revocable trust. I revoked it. And they're like, what? Yeah, I emptied it four days ago. It's gone. And she's thinking, let's just get this, you know, this charade over with. But here's the good part. Uh, one of the girl's attorneys, after Pam left the room, got on the phone to Russ's attorney, Joel Schwartz, and said, this might interest you. Pam Hupp just emptied that trust for the girls and kept the money. And Joel said it was manna from heaven. He'd been looking for anything to get a retrial for, for Russ. He, got a, he put all of his eggs in one basket, showed everything he had against Pam. Now she has even taken away the money, got a new judge. And this judge said, you got a point. I'm going to give him a second trial. Now Pam's sweating bullets, but not just Pam, because Joel Schwartz is also pointing out how these detectives and prosecuting attorney railroaded his client that there was faked evidence. And so now everybody's sweating. And so there's a new trial coming up and the detectives start bringing in Pam, like on a regular basis, you got to help us nail this because our butts are on the line now too. We've got to show, no, you got the right guy, keep him in prison. And they just keep coming, having her come in and feeding her new stuff she can say. And I don't mean hinting. I mean, Here's what we think might have happened. What do you think? I mean, holy heck. But what, as you say, things that just came out of the woodwork, somewhere along the line, we have now Pam saying that she and Betsy were lovers. Yeah, well, okay. So <laughs> the, 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 the thing is, is, okay, we, he gets the second trial. Okay. They do not call Pam and she's furious. They have her waiting out in the wings during the trial. She's bragged to news 
papers or to news coverage on the star witnesses, they didn't call her. And she is actually texting Joel Schwartz's co-counsel, Nathan Swanson, saying, if you guys had any you'd have me in. I mean, she is literally furious that they're not calling her to let her have her, her say, and they never did. And so toward the end of the trial, when she realizes she's in deep doo-doo, in fact, one of the jurors even wrote, and this was in the first trial, one of the jurors wrote, they're going after Pam Hub. It was, the, the gloves were off. The whole second trial was saying, there is another person out there that had more reason. Had, and so Pam took off before the second trial ended. I don't know if she thought handcuffs were headed for her, but she took off in the dark across the parking lot and left. And they, they I mean, and, and Russ just burst out crying. He'd been in prison now for three and a half years. He was acquitted and let go. Now, and we now need to, I think we need to point out that the second trial was judged, was bench trial, correct? Bench trial. Bench judge trial. Omar. Yeah. And he wasn't, he wasn't, playing like the first judge. This guy was out for justice. He even questioned some of the detectives. We, they had one detective come in. Suddenly, after all these years, four or five years later, he comes in and says, actually, that night when I went through, I saw water droplets in the tub. And they've already proven there was no blood in any of the drains. And so the judge actually takes a shot at him. And he's kind of a good old boy kind of judge. He goes, how many drops of water did you see? Uh, 11. And where were they in the tub? In, in the middle, in the middle of the tub. Was there like a trail of water going to the drain? No. Any water on the tile? No. So the judge went after him. And the judge is like, oh, my gosh. So right toward the end of this trial, and this is actually gave me chills. Nathan Swanson, the co-counsel for Russ, his phone went off. And they said, Pam Hupp's mother just fell through a third floor balcony and is dead. The death of mom and getting the insurance mom money was pretty quick. Yeah, the, her mother died on Halloween, and the trial was November 2nd. Wow. So we're talking that. Turned it that, over pretty the quick. News just got to the attorneys a uh, few days ago. So, yeah, I mean, that's how close she came. And the mother's death's a whole other story. Right. But, now, now, to prove that she's got this money, so she really didn't spend it, she does yeah. bring it. She has a, is this like just a meeting? It's not an interrogation. She's coming in to the prosecution. She's not charged with anything. So she's coming into the prosecution office to show good faith, correct? Or the Well, police. basically, I think it was contrived. I think, again, I think Leah Askey and Pam got together and said, we ought to do this in the interrogation room where the camera's watching us. And I'm going to bring in a bag, bag meaning it was a deer bird leather purse bag, big satchel with all the money. She, so she brings in cash to show Leah Askey so that the police camera can see, oh my gosh, she didn't spend it. She really does have it. 
Joel Schwartz about died. I mean, and Mike Wood, who's the current prosecuting attorney and has talked with me a lot. And he goes, Rebecca, how do you <laughs> tell that? Did they sit there? Did they sit there and count this, these, this money? And I said, well, here's the point. She couldn't have held up a check because <laughs> the camera's not going to catch that. We'll just dump out all this. And I'm sorry if I'm laughing because this is an insidious case. But the irony of all of it. And then while she's got the camera, she's going, and I'll tell you what hurts, Leah. There are people accusing me of hurting my mother how does a person throw a 210-pound woman through the railings? How does a man do that? So she has served all the purposes she needed to in that one interview in front of the camera. A, I couldn't have killed my mom. And B, look, I still got the money. So I love the line you have from the judge. I don't think it's, well, because he's trying the case. There's no jury where he goes, glad I'm not closely related to her. <laughs> Yeah, and they, these people are dying around her. Yeah, Nathan uh, Swanson asked for a sidebar and went up and showed the judge the text he just got. And the judge is going, okay, we can't try this one right now. He goes, I will say I'm really glad I'm not related to this one. When the detectives had first interviewed Pam the morning after Betsy's murder, she said, Betsy told me that she had an email she was going to send me that talked about Russ putting a pillow over her head and all, and that he wanted her money and that he'd been reading my emails and all of this. I wish you'd, and Pam, this is Pam, she goes, I wish you'd go and look at her laptop and, and find that. And she kept calling in an email and then at the last minute she changed it. She goes, a, a document. She knew everything that was in that email. So they looked and I guess they didn't find it or they didn't look very hard. So anyway, two weeks before the second trial, Greg Chatton, and I love him dearly for all the time he gave me, a fascinating guy. He's their IT expert. And he goes through the laptop, Betsy's laptop, and he finds the letter. Here's where, I mean, I don't know how much weirder everything can get. So he finds it. It's not an email. It's a document. Here's what's interesting about it. It was created on Word 97, which was not installed on Betsy's computer. It was the only document that said author unknown. Somebody at the same time had tried to open Office to send it as an email, but Betsy didn't have her office set up, and they tried to access her signature block right. and couldn't do that either. That's why it's unsigned. There's, there's no signature at the bottom of it. And the Wi-Fi said the club. And Pam said they were at the tennis club that she went to watch Betsy play that day. And that was later that day, Betsy said that she'd sent her the email. So what it, basically what Greg Chatton told me was Pam's sitting there watching her play tennis and at a thumb drive with this letter already on it, stuck it into Betsy's laptop. And Betsy always had her laptop with her. She had a DJ business. Yep. And she was always so uploaded it. Can you imagine? She's sitting there watching her play and crap, I can't get the darn thing to send. And so she just saves it as a document. She knew everything that was on that and it came back to bite her. How'd you know everything that was on that thing? And 
Betsy couldn't have created it. None of this fits with her with her laptop. So that was another. So, so as I remember, it was sort of like one of these Perry Mason or Matlock moments yeah. where the prosecution is using this is still in the second trial, right? Using it Correct. as evidence against Rossi. The pillow thing is true. What Pam said at the first trial, uh, this is all true. She was scared of you. Pam is her friend. And then dun 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 on the horse, the door is open, and in comes Mr. Tech Guy to yes. explain yes. all the stuff that I don't understand, metadata and all that. But very clearly, what you just explained now, there were so many, and even this can be debated, I guess, that the, the um, uh, nature of the letter was more in uh, Pam speak than in Betsy speak. Some of the words yeah, she it, used. Yeah. Good job. I love that you read the book. I mean, this, <laughs> really, no, she says it, really, really, really a lot. And so, yeah, maybe really, I mean, really was in there. Well, people have mannerisms that show up. Of course. Of course. I have misspellings. Really, really, really. But he comes in. So I'm, I'm correct that now did, I don't want to make it sound too Matlocky, but was it true that did the the, the prosecution must have known that he was that they were going to have an expert witness. They may have not known how much he was going to destroy this concept that the letter was written by Betsy. But that was great detective work or by a lawyer to say, OK, what can we do with this letter? And, well, and they, yeah, they because originally when they heard they found the letter, Joel Schwartz's words were it was very troubling because it was all against Russ. Until and he here comes and he did come charging in and said, "Yeah, but Betsy didn't create that letter." And the only other person that knew about the letter knew it was on her laptop, knew when it was written. She even told him it was written at the tennis club. Pam did, and everything that was on it was Pam. Now what? And when he went to get Pam's computer, she said she didn't have one. Who doesn't what have a, but she had a printer. <laughs> now, and as you say, the, this, the situation then becomes that Russ is uh, acquitted. The DAs, which they always say, well, we're not looking to charge anyone else. We believe we had the right uh, a perpetrator and the, the, the judicial system says, no, that's fine. And um, so that's it. No, no murder, nothing but. Pam, of course, realizes that that uh, Swanson's after her. Yeah. And that's when things start getting really, really hairy. So. Um, oh, and then leading up to the trial, to the second trial, when the detectives are really trying to bring this home, they had her come in. And this is where and I'm, I'm not going to mention the attorney's names right now because they're in trouble. Um, but anyway, the one says, and this is leading up to the second trial and they need to nail this. And they said, so they've got Pam, they, they bring her in and they said, so we've been talking amongst ourselves and we wonder if this could have happened the night that Betsy died, that you're leaving the house and Russ knew you were there, whether he saw your car or whatever and saw you leave. And that made him mad. By any chance, did you see Russ that night? And she went, no, that, that short, this was July leading up to the trial in October. She's back. You know what I did? I did see Russ 
when I came out of the house, there's a car sitting there at the side of the street. And there were two men, two. And you can hear the excitement. I listened to the video over and over. And she said, and, and you can hear the detective getting excited. And she goes, and one of them ducked when I looked over there. And he goes, do you think you know who it was? I do, I do. And he goes, who was it? Who was it? She goes, it was Russ. And I'm going, oh, my gosh. And in this same interview, she says, Betsy and I became really close during all of this. She was suffering and she was leaning on me and it just evolved and I became what a husband should be. So here's Nathan Swanson who's listening to this new evidence, his new recordings right before the second trial and he's going, she's not going to say what I think she's going to say. And then she said it and it was that she, they were having an affair and that Russ caught him pushed her up against the wall. She's telling the attorney, the spit's flying in my face. If I catch you two again, I'm going to cut you up and put you in the backyard. This was all a couple of months before the trial. She is now saying they were lovers, which does two things. This is why she gave me the money. I replaced what a husband should be. And Russ saw me leaving that night, thought that we were in there hanky-pankying and went in and killed her. And I'm just sitting there going, can this get any more bizarre? Boy, it's, it's, but it's thinking on your feet. It's being quite the tap dancer. I mean, I know, you know it didn't come immediately, but you know, she, she sat there and went, yeah, yeah, I can come up with, yeah, this works better. Yeah, yeah. So Russ is acquitted. And then the civil trial comes only two months later where the girls finally get to take her to court and they go through this whole thing. And Pam is just so confident at this point. She's combative with their, their attorney. He says something to her and she goes, whoa, 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 whoa. And I mean, she's just in his face the whole time. Long story short, the judge awarded the money to her. He sure. said the paperwork was in order. Yep. Betsy knew life insurance. If she wanted to say that it was for her daughter, yep. she'd have put she it on have. there. Yep. It's no. in order. And she won. Yep. And as she's leaving the civil trial, Dateline's out there in the parking lot because they'd been popping in and out of this thing. And she walks by him and goes, say hi to Kathy for me. Kathy's the Dateline producer. And this will come back to be an awful thing in a few minutes. So anyway, she wins the trial. She gets to keep the money. And so she, and I believe it was during this time, she gets the facelift. I didn't know about the facelift until after the book came out. Um, but she also bought herself a brand new 2016 GMC Acadia with the money. So now... Joel Schwartz is breathing down her neck. Russ is free. Somebody killed Betsy. And so this is when the second, well, the third, if you believe she killed her mother, which pretty much everybody does. Um, she gets the Acadia. Chris Hayes, who has been her nemesis, he has been on her trail, on her butt. He's come to her door and interviewed her. Did you kill your mom? She hates him. Hates him, hates him, hates him. He's at work at the Fox 2 station, and somebody said, hey, Hayes, this lady just called and says Russ Faria is at a beauty salon in Lake St. Louis waving a gun around. 
And he and Chris goes, "You got to be kidding me!" And Chris is the only one that's really been covering this case. He goes up to the to the guy that just hung up. The guy hands him the post-it note, and he goes, "I really something's weird about this." She did not want to give me her name, and she finally said. Louise Stanton or whatever it was she called herself. And so he hands him the post-it note, tells him the salon, the salon, salon. And Chris pauses for a minute, looks at the phone number, punches it into his phone and Pam Hupp's name comes up on the caller ID because he's called her a lot. Whoa, back up. Wait a minute. And this salon is out in the middle of the Thule's. It's one of these little strip malls. It's just, and he's going what's going on so he calls the salon and the lady that answers he goes is there, is there a guy there waving a gun around no 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 there's a guy that came in and had an argument with one of the hairstylists because she i guess went on social media and called him a killer that he got away with murder and called him a killer there's no gun so here's the thing that's chilling is, and we're going to see this in a minute with what happens next. I do believe, and I asked Chris, I said, do you think something was going to happen to you? She knew you'd come charging down there to see what was going on with what, Russ waving a gun. If you hadn't seen her name pop up, if you hadn't called the salon, would you have gone? Yeah. And this is where it gets chilling. So he didn't go. A few months later, Pam is in her new Acadia and starts trolling through a trailer park. Doesn't know anybody there. She's driving along and she comes around a corner and sees this lady that's leaning on the railing of, her, of the trailer balcony watching her dog and Pam waves, goes back, comes back around the corner and stops at the end of the driveway and yells out, do you babysit? And the lady's like, who asks a total stranger if they babysit? So this lady walks to the end of the driveway, shaking her head like, no. And then Pam goes, actually, I'm Kathy with Dateline. I'm a Dateline producer. I'll give you $1,000 if you'll go with me and reenact a 911 call for the show. Easy money. Just come with me to where we're shooting it and just help me fake a 911 call. So this lady's like, and she's very street smart. Carol's very street smart, but she's barefoot. She goes, hang on a minute. I, let me go put the dog in the house. She doesn't trust what's going on, but she wants to see where this is going. So she slips a knife up one sleeve of her hoodie and puts another bigger one in the pouch of the hoodie, still barefoot, gets in the car, and Pam tells her, you can't bring a cell phone, keys, or, or a wallet or anything because the, the show doesn't like clutter. So they're, they're half a block down the street headed to where they're going. She goes, we rented this little house up here to do, the, to do this. And Carol said, can you show me some ID? Oh, I, I'll, I'll show you when we get there. I don't, I don't have it right now. And she said, finally, she goes, you know, I need you to take me back real quick because I need to get shoes on and stuff. And I'm worried about the dog. So she has Pam pull into her driveway which was really smart to let her out because now her security camera that's on the front of the trailer has caught Pam's license plate and you can see Pam clear as day. And what's chilling is when they pulled up, Pam went to get out of the car. I think she was going to kill her there. 
and looked up and said, you've got cameras. And she goes, yes, I do. So she comes back out and says, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. Pam leaves undaunted, goes through the trailer park again, comes across this guy, Brent Charlton, who's out mowing the lawns. He works for a landscape company. He's doing the lots at the trailer park. She pulls to where she's going to cut him off as he's coming toward her. He puts it in idle. She's leaning over, you know, sunglasses down. She goes, hi, I'm with Dateline. Gives him the same spiel. And he went, no, lady, I'm busy. I, I'm, I've got, I got a job. I need to do all this. And, and she, he said, I, there was something about her. It was just like almost, you know, aggression. Like, I need you to do this. And he said, I, and he backed up and he said, no. So she goes home, and I think she was concerned about that security camera. So she waits six days. She gives it almost a week. Nothing happened. No police show up. So she goes out again. And this time she goes to an apartment complex, and Louis Gumpenberger is sitting out there. He often does. He's mentally challenged. He was in a car wreck. He's 33, physically in great condition, but the mentality of a 12-year-old, according to his mom. He also limps. Uh, he can't run. And she gets him to come over. I get, they say she sat there four minutes based on the cell phone data and her car. Actually, it was the Starlink or this whatever, you know, I mean, your car that will map things for Google Map. And I guess he decided to go with her. She drives him to her house. And um, gets him to come into the house and pretend that he's breaking in to attack her. She goes into the bedroom, gets the gun, and shoots him five times and kills him. All the while, uh, all the on while the on the phone to nine one one, she had she had coached him about what he was supposed to say. Yeah. And he thought that, that now, again, like you say, 12-year-old mind, he's not wondering where's the camera, you know, yeah. or where's whatever. Maybe she told him it was only going to be on tape. They just need the voices, um, you know, and but kills him. Yeah. Well, what she told the police when they showed up was that she was backing out of the driveway to run errands, that this car screeched up. Again, the driver looked suspiciously like Russ. And that Lewis jumped out, jumped into the passenger side of her car, put a knife to her neck and said, we're going to the bank to get Russ's money. That she karate chops the knife out of the hand, jumps out of the car, runs in the house. He follows her and follows her to the master bedroom and, and she shoots him and he falls in the hallway. So you can, she did call 911 three times, which is interesting. She did call them twice and hang up because I think he wasn't ready. Either he was in the wrong spot or he said the wrong line. And he actually did say the wrong line when she made the real 911 call. And that's what your listeners need to know. She was using that as her alibi. She wanted the 911 dispatcher to hear this guy come in and say these lines, but he said the wrong line. He said, you want me to do to you what you did to your wife, which was the wrong line. And Pam went, no, I'm not going to get in the car with you. No. And I mean, it's just so phony. And the, when they sent me the tape, um, Tim Lomar, the prosecuting attorney for the Lewis Gumpenberger case, 
when I interviewed him, he said, Rebecca, what most people don't know is when you call 911, there's at least two or three seconds before they say 911 where it's running. There's no noise. There's no scuffle. It's almost like the minute they, she said 911, it was action. And he said, a lot of people don't realize that call's already being recorded before they start talking. So the thing that's really, really sad and listening to this thing makes me really sad is when the gun goes off, the smoke alarm goes off. I guess it was so loud and you can hear the sirens screaming, you know, the smoke alarm thing. And you hear the dispatcher talking to probably Chief Nesky, who was on his way, saying now an alarm's going off. And there's what's chilling to me is there's a whole almost 30 seconds of silence, except for this, the alarm. What was she doing? She's not talking anymore. I think during that time, she was putting a fake note into his pocket and nine $100 bills to look like the, 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 the note ended up being like it was supposed to have been Russ that wrote it that said, go get Pam Hub, take her to the bank, get my money, go back and kill her, put the knife in her neck like she did to my wife kind of thing, um, or like... Yeah, the way Betsy was found. And I'll give you the rest of the money at the park when we meet up. So I think that's what she was doing during that time lapse. And then all of a sudden she goes, hello, who is this? Who is this? She's been on the phone to 911. And I think that's what she was doing. And she goes, I'm going outside. I'm going outside. I'm getting my dog. And when Chief Nesky pulled up, um, she was standing in the driveway, and I love his interview in the book. I, I think it's a highlight in the book because he was the first one there. And she's got a one-year-old dog that's on a leash, and she's going, I shot him, I shot him, I shot him. And he goes, who? And she goes, this guy. And he kept saying, take me to the bank. we got to get Russ's money. He goes, who's Russ? She goes, I don't know. Four times, who's Russ? I don't know. So they, he goes in and he looks, and, and Lewis is laying there. He's clearly dead. Meanwhile, the other responders are coming. The re ambulance pulls up, and they put, an they put uh, Pam in the back just to check her out, make sure she's okay. And so the guy that was checked her out comes out, and all this, all Chief Nesky knows so far is her name's Pam. The guy comes out of the ambulance, and he's like, you know who we've got in there, right? And he went, no. He went, Pam Hupp, and Chief Nesty's going, Pam Hupp, where do I know that name? He goes, the Faria case, the murder over in Lincoln County, because now this is in St. Charles County. She's moved to a different house. And, Chief, and he goes, oh, back up, stop, Russ Faria. And she just said four times, I don't know any Russ. I mean, that to me was a highlight in the book was that, oh, my gosh, and so they take her into the station and to interview her. And instead of the good old boy buddy system she had in Lincoln County, these detectives aren't playing. They already realized that there's a problem. The, the $100 bills in Lewis Gumpenberger's pocket, they were in sequence. They were brand new. They hadn't been circulated, and they found a matching $100 bill in her nightstand drawer in the same sequential order. It's one in a billion 
that that would happen. They also found out she bought the knife that he supposedly used against her at the dollar store, bought the notepad the note was written on, bought the pen. And so anyway, she's sitting there in the interrogation room. They take her shoes and they take her phone. And all of a sudden, this is different. This isn't the buddies from the, you know, making her star witness. And she, in the video, she looks over at the detective when they took her shoes. She goes, I just want to know why everyone's coming at me. And you can tell she's getting nervous. So when they take her phone, they hurry and track it. And they see she went exactly to his apartment building. They later were able to map her route back and look at the security cameras along the route from Lewis's apartment to her home. And there he is sitting in the passenger seat. She brought him with her. I mean, that's just a total stranger. So that the whole deal was it was supposed to look like Russ hired this guy to kill her and Russell go back to prison. He must have done it all along and I'm free. And it was worth sacrificing a man's life for. And of course, the, the, the tip off too, as you say, she bought all these things and she wrote the note and clearly it was not even near uh, Russ's handwriting. It wasn't. No, they had him write it six times using both his right hand and his left hand, but the house that she was going to take Carol to the first lady that got in the car with her was actually Russ's mother's house. And the Russ's mother's address was on the fake note in Lewis Gumpenberger's pocket. So, and Russ was still living there with his mother at the time. So <laughs> just to, just to wrap up of uh, the poor, uh, we're sort of coming, coming to the end, uh, which is hard to, I mean, it just, it spins more out of control every minute. Is this interrogation with the shoes and is this where she goes to the bathroom or is that a later one? No. So they, she goes home and the very next day she knows she's in trouble. The St. Louis Dispatch, Robert Patrick, was out there with a cameraman and happens to see Pam and her husband, Mark, come out of the house with a big white hefty bag full of garbage. And they took a picture and the picture's in the book. Um, and so later they got a search warrant to go in the house, but they found a safe. And the safe wasn't on the search warrant. So they had to get a different search warrant. In the meantime, they arrest Pam. And when they brought her in, uh, they go over her Miranda rights. The two detectives are sitting there with her. And um, they, she said, I want an attorney. So they go up to go call her the attorney. And the only things left on the table are a post-it note, their reading glasses, a water bottle, and a big pen. And in the video, it is so chilling. You can see her sitting here like this, looking at the bottle. And in one swift movement, she reaches over, takes the bottle that hooks the pen at the same time and pulls them both toward her, all nonchalant, pretending she's just getting a drink. But then she takes the pen and slips it in the waistband of her pants. And, when the, and then she sits there feeling for her carotid. You can see her doing this. The, they come back in. She goes, I need to use the bathroom. So the, a female uh, officer takes her to the bathroom. The next thing, and you're hearing all of this. You hear everyone say, Pam, Pam, Pam. 
and they're shouting. And she had gone in the bathroom and taken the big pen and started stabbing herself in the neck and in the wrists, which that wasn't lost on anybody that that's the same wounds that were on Betsy Faria was the neck and the wrists. And the, 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 the police officer, when she didn't come right out, yelled in there, Pam, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. At the very same time, she's stabbing herself. So they take her to the hospital. She's fine. They're superficial. A couple of them are a little ugly. And she goes to jail. And so during, she's on a phone conversation, which they're taped from jail with her husband. Which is in the book. That's in the book. That's in the book too. And it is just, that's chilling to read it. It's just chilling. So she's on the phone to Mark. And this is why I don't think Mark was involved in any of this. I really don't. Um, She's saying they don't have anything. You know, she's bragging. All these guys are losers. This guy is like a Barney Fife. I mean, she's making fun of everybody. And she was just like law and order. This guy's actually red in the face. And she's making fun of them. And she said, they're saying they've got all this evidence that I, they can show that I drove out there. And she goes, the star system thing wasn't even on in the car. Mark very calmly goes, it was turned off, but it's always on. It is. <laughs> you can hear it. In the- and he goes, well, yeah. Huh. Okay, whatever. He goes, yeah, whatever. And it was right after that she decided to go for the Alfred plea rather than go through a trial. An Alfred plea is where you can say, yeah, I believe the prosecution probably has enough. I'm not going to say I did it, but I will go ahead and plead guilty to saying they have a pretty good case and I'm taking it out. That saves her from the death penalty. She's still going to go to prison, and she did for life, plus 30, which was exactly what Russ got. Um, And people questioned um, Tim Walmart, the prosecuting attorney, why didn't you go for the death penalty? And he said, I asked the family their wishes. Problem with the death penalty is the appeals go on and on, and you just keep having to go back to court and go through all of this, and they didn't want to do it. They thought, good enough, she's in prison. So Lewis's mother actually um, filed against Pam, uh, won a $3 million civil case suit. She'll never see any of it. Um, Russ sued Lincoln County and won $2 million, and he did get it. He did get the money. So in July 12th, and here's the last part, in 2021, uh, Mike Wood, who's the new prosecuting attorney, announced he is going for the death penalty. And he's going after the prosecution that railroaded Russ the first time. So I imagine there's a lot of sleepless nights going on right now. Um, So I talked to them quite a lot. Uh, They arraigned Pam uh, July 27th, 2021. She didn't want to go. She said, my attorney can go in and say not guilty. Nope, you're coming in. And she hid behind the COVID mask. Uh, which was interesting because when you first see the courtroom, her lawyers weren't wearing one, but I think they did it so it wouldn't look obvious that she was hiding behind the mask. And as they're making her do the perp walk into the court, there's good old Chris Hayes in the parking lot yelling out, hey, Pam, is there anything you want to say to Bessie Faria's family? So he got the last word in again. Um, So that's where we are. So basically, 
we're, and when I say we, I, I, I'm very grateful that I get to talk and interview with these people. They're very careful about what they tell me. They'll say, you can print this, you can't print that. We do think there may be another victim in Florida based on something that we've heard. And they're being nice enough to let me go play detective and look into that. So right now they're looking, they're starting over because the first case was so tainted. They're doing their own DNA testing and they're going to be super careful and cross all the T's because this is a death penalty case. Uh, we thought the preliminary hearing would be next month or May. It's looking closer to August. I don't think the trial will be until next year and possibly later. Um, but yeah, that's just a story that keeps going. In the end, the young lady who was smart enough to get Pam to come back and be photographed, her name was Carol Alford. And lo and behold, what did she do? She and Russ ended up falling in love and they are now engaged. And I do not like the uh, the note in the end of your book that you will that, that a, a a tall um, murder mystery writer will be around again if if they will have her as she wanders the halls of the courtrooms. Actually, they they've already. I'm I'm really excited to go see these people. They're my friends now. I I talk with the detective several times a week, and I can't wait to go give them a hug. Um, so yeah, I'm going to be at the preliminary hearing in the trial for sure. Great. And I wrote about Limp Mansion, which is in St. Louis. So I already have friends there. And I have to give a shout out to Patty Bath. I met her while writing the history and haunting of Limp Mansion. She's the one that texts me and said, have you heard about this crazy story going on out here? And I said, no, if she hadn't told me about Pam Hupp, I wouldn't have known anything about it. And she went to the, to the um, Pam Hupps High School and got the pictures of Pam from her senior yearbook for me that are in the book. So I love you, Patty. So I want to, again, thank my guest today, uh, my return guest, uh, Rebecca Pittman, who has written a fascinating book, a very comprehensive book called Countdown to Murder, Pam Hupp. I like the subtitle, uh, Death Insured. Obviously, Pam did a lot of insuring out there. We can have our judgments about mom, but I think obviously it's pretty clear she did uh, two murders, one for insurance and one in her mind to cover up the murder. Uh, for they did for just reopen the case into her mother. Correct. Just and, recently. Um, so. so we're going to keep an eye out for uh, more developments. And your website is? It's uh, www.rebeccaf, as in Frank, pitmanbooks.com. Dot com. And again, yes, go on Amazon, leave a, leave a review. And thank you for graciously spending so much time with us today. Jim, thank you. I appreciate it. It's a fascinating case. And thanks to you, my listeners, for tuning in again today. And uh, until we meet again, stay safe. And for God's sakes, don't murder anyone.